Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Hello, I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and today on the Yoga Hour, we're going to be exploring the topic of the wisdom of yoga for living in today's world. And um, exploring the question about how these ancient teachings of yoga can radically enlighten every aspect of our lives, how we can be fully human as well as spiritually mature in our modern modern world. And we have just the person that we want to talk to about this, um, about what these ancient teachings can offer us today. Stephen Cope uh, is with us. He's a best-selling author and spiritual teacher. He specializes in the relationship between Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. Stephen is the founder, former director, and current scholar-in-residence of Kripalu Institute for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Um, In its 25th anniversary edition, Yoga Journal magazine named him one of the most influential thinkers, writers, and teachers on the current American yoga scene. And today, we're focusing on his book, The Wisdom of Yoga, A Seeker's Guide to Extraordinary Living. And uh, you can find out more about Stephen, more about his books, which I recommend all of them highly, um, at his website, his author site, stephencope.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-C-O-P-E. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Stephen. It's such a delight to be um, having a conversation with you again. Thanks, Ellen. It's always really a pleasure to speak with you, so I'm, I'm very happy to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And before we dive into this topic about um, really what yoga philosophy and practice can offer us um, who are really interested in extraordinary living, um, before we dive into that, let's just take a moment for a centering meditation. Wherever you are in this moment, as we prepare to listen deeply and to engage in this conversation about the wisdom of yoga for our life today, wherever you are, just take a moment with me to pause and to let your mind sink into your heart. Let your mind become quiet 
by simply noticing your breath. Feel the sensation of your breath moving in your nostrils, the cool air tickling the back of your throat, expanding your chest and your abdomen, and the warm air moving out again. Just breathing, noticing, allowing yourself to stop for this moment, to attend, to being present. And as we allow ourselves this moment and really this hour ahead to explore the wisdom of yoga, let's begin with uh, contemplating a little quote, a little inspiration for the day that says, get to know your innate joy by experiencing regularly after meditation. Get to know your innate joy by experiencing it regularly after meditation. Become good friends with it. Sit with joy every day. Encourage it to hang around. Avoid thinking that you cannot experience joy because of some situation or challenge. With a calm mind, Affirm your blissful nature and let go of any beliefs that interfere with your ability to access it. Your inner joy will blossom with each conscious breath. So we take a moment to acknowledge that beyond all change and phenomenon is the joy that yoga points to the blissful awareness of our essential self. So let us be aware of that. Make friends with it. Allow it to come forth. Again, Stephen Culp, welcome back to the Yoga Hour, and thank you so much for all of your books um, on yoga, philosophy, and practice. And uh, of course, one of the things I really appreciate about you is the um, well, is your writing ability that makes um, reading your books really pleasant, um, but also this beautiful combination that you bring um, as a psychotherapist and a yogi, um, because your books on on yoga really grapple with the human condition and have us look at what does this really look like? Um, not the, you know, the, the version that we might see on a cover of a magazine and think, okay, I'd like that is more like really down in the deep of it. What does it really look like? So I can't think of anybody better that I'd rather talk to about the wisdom of yoga for our extraordinary life. And could you start off by just sharing with us um, what brought you to the path of yoga? 
you know, it it's a story that goes way back. I um I I got involved in Buddhist meditation when I was in graduate school. And you know, I was in grad school <clears throat> in Cambridge in the early in the early 70s and and they used to say you can go to Harvard Square and meet your guru, which is kind of what happened to me. I uh, I got involved with Chukma Trungpa Rinpoche's group in Cambridge, and they had a, a wonderful uh, meditation center called Dharmadhatu. And, you know, I was one of those guys who was lit up profoundly by the Dharma as soon as I met it. And honestly, I often think that that says something about past lives, because how did I even know to be so lit up, but I was on fire with the Dharma um, as soon as I met it through through Buddhist practice, and then I discovered that yoga, I, I basically discovered yoga as a preparation for meditation, which of course is, uh, hatha yoga uh, is in so many ways, and and, um, and I began to dive deeply, I, I just got totally hooked in, in uh, in postures and pranayama and um, the teaching that was available at that point, and this is now quite a few years ago, um, and was uh, hooked on the the many delights and practices of of yoga, and combined that with with Buddhist meditation, which I've done pretty much throughout my career. Then there was another interesting side to my approach to yoga, which is that. My mother, when I was in my teens and 20s, my mother <clears throat> had a condition called torticollis, or wry neck. And she was desperately looking for healing for that, and she actually found it in yoga, which, again, back in those days was not mainstream at all. Mm. But my mother became a yoga practitioner in her 40s and continued <laughs> until practically the day she died. Hmm. Um, and again, wow. way, way ahead of her time. So yoga kind of penetrated my family early, and, uh, and I, just, I just dove. And the other thing is that um, the deeper practices of yoga are so connected with Western depth psychology and their understanding. <clears throat> so as soon as I began to read deeply into the yoga scriptures, I realized that I was in somewhat familiar territory in terms of looking at the very roots of human perception and motivation and volition. Mm -hmm. So it's just, um, yeah, it appealed. <laughs> I understand. And, and I want to say, um, again, it's just my recommendation of, of all of your work. And um, today, of course, we're focused on this book, The Wisdom of Yoga. But I, when I started on the path of Kriya Yoga, I had a similar experience of just being on fire and being drawn to the teachings. And, um, you know, it's like, why didn't I see this before? And, you know, I just dove in. But I discovered, you know, after that high of um, thinking, okay, I'm going to be enlightened here, um, you know, within a few months' time, um, <laughs> I, you know, I ran into all the messiness of my life, yeah, and yeah. I found that, um, you know, I needed therapy as well. Yeah. And so, you know, at that time, there wasn't really a lot to tell us about um, how the two can work together. 
And um, there have been some voices, you know, your voice and Jack Cornfield and John Wellwood and, um, you know, Sylvia Borstein, others who have helped us see that there's not a conflict between doing psychological work and this wisdom work that we find in yoga. In fact, they're quite compatible. But, of course, you need to work with somebody who knows that, right? (laughs) So. Thank you. Thank you for that. And so, you know, tell tell us about this particular book, uh, The Wisdom of Yoga, Seeker's Guide to Extraordinary Living. What, you know, what drew you to do that? So this one honestly came out of a conversation I had with Ann Cushman, whom you may know was uh, an editor at Yoga Journal way back in the day. And Ann and I were at a Yoga Journal conference together. And and we, she said to me, you know, Steve, American yogis are not going to read the uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. They're just not going to read. It doesn't have any of the the characters of the Bhagavad Gita or any of that great inspirational spiritual writing. It's very dry. And I thought she's so right. American <laughs> yogis are not going to get the the depth teachings if they can't get access to this brilliant scripture of the Yoga Sutra. And um, I had just written my first book, Yoga in the Quest for the True Self, which was very explicitly depth psychological. Um, And I decided I really wanted to take on the puzzle of seeing if I could make the the Yoga Sutra um, mainstream or accessible to more American yogis. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of like taking on a puzzle like that. I did it with the Bhagavad Gita in in my book, The Great Work of Your Life. Um, yes, this was my first <laughs> fabulous book. And this one, with the wisdom of yoga, just um, for the listeners, because we're just going to get a little brief dive into it. But, you know, what Stephen did was he, um, instead of just, um, a, you know, a theoretical um, approach, he um, has it populated with friends and people who are struggling with issues in their life, whether it's relationship or creativity or addiction. Um, and really looking at, okay, well, what does the wisdom, this this thousand-year-old wisdom, what does it tell us today for these very things that, that we come across? And that sort of leads me to the quote um, by Annie Dillard that you uh, have in the very beginning of the book, which is so beautiful, um, that concludes with her saying, there never was a more holy age than ours and never uh, less. And, um, and, and, and so, of course, I, I know that's true, but I want you to, to tell us something about, um, can I even say why the wisdom of yoga is still relevant and perhaps even more so for us today in this age? Absolutely. I I use that quote from Dillard because there is, we tend to romanticize this idea that there were holy ages in the past uh, when people were routinely enlightened and that that's not accessible to us. And it's just not true. Um, It's all accessible to us. And in fact, these great scriptures in the Eastern contemplative traditions have found a home in the West precisely because they're so practical. They're full of practices 
I began my career way back in graduate school. Uh, I was going to become an Episcopal priest, and I went through Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge. And what I discovered is that so many of the Western wisdom traditions give you tons of theology and take you right up into your head, whereas, <laughs> and, and there's very little practice. There's actually mm-hmm. very little practice that allows you to awaken and transform in a depth way. Whereas the Eastern contemplative traditions are all about practice, and they're very practical. And, you know, Americans, we're very practical people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I, I, I remember that, that same tension in my life. I went to, you know, went back to college and wanted to major, major in religious studies, you know, that came out of that deep soul yearning. And I, I had yeah. that same experience that you're talking about, that it was just, I was just going to be reading about philosophy. And I was looking for an experience, which um, yes. is what yoga, you know, is about, that we have to walk yeah. this path and experience it. And, you know, here you're pointing to this um, question that, you know, the ancient sages raised, you know, what is it in a sense to be a human being and what is an optimal human life? Uh, and what would it actually be like to function um, optimally? Um, so <laughs> I'm sure we could spend a whole week diving into that. But, you know, briefly, what would you say about that? Well, there's there, there are always kind of two ways of approaching this. There are two facets of any wisdom tradition, view and practice. Um, and you're pointing me to the questions here about about view. The question is, who are we in our deepest nature? Who can we be? What does a fully alive human being look like? Um, and the yoga tradition is very clear that the the very essence of 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 human beingness is the capacity to know. Uh, this is often this is called vidya, um, or and vidya is usually translated to mean knowledge, but it really means much more than that. It means knowing how things are, knowing how the world works, knowing the whole field of mind and matter. So consciousness. You know, the, the Yoga Sutra, this, this great scripture that I've written about, begins, Yoga Sutavriti Naroda, or yoga is to still the patterning of, of consciousness. Then the witness abides in itself. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that Consciousness shines forth. Our true nature is consciousness. Our capacity to know the realm of mind and matter uh, is who we really are. And yoga allows us to be clear about that um, and to function in that kind of consciousness um, more and more. And when we do, we understand experientially one central reality, which as I age in this practice has become more important, and that's called, in this scripture, that's called samapati, or coalescence, and what it means is the direct realization that all human beings are made of the same stuff, that (laughs) is, in every way that matters, you and I and the listeners and the people sitting next door to my house here are all essentially made of the same stuff. This This is sometimes in a metaphysical sense, called unity consciousness. But um, yoga practices actually promote this in a very deep way. So there's a sense of deep connectedness and union. And 
the Bhagavad Gita, the other great scripture of yoga, calls this the vision of sameness. Mm-hmm. And it begins to cut through separation. And of course, we're living in a time of just massive separation right now when we think somehow that we're profoundly different and you know individualistic and living on our own um on our own power when actually we're profoundly interdependent and mm-hmm. profoundly the same inside mm-hmm. and that and there's this sense that any real change and the changes that we need, whether it is in the political climate or our uh, deep issues of climate change that we're facing today, um, are really only going to shift, you know, when we can awaken to that sense of our interconnection, you know, to one another and to all of life. Um, I want to point back to what you said about this capacity that we have as human beings to know, um, to to really be conscious of um, that truth uh, of our being, that spiritual truth of our being. Um, I was thinking about the, you know, the teaching of Jesus of it. You know, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And um, you know, for me, that points so much to that sense of what it is to live optimally, in, which is to experience that freedom, that liberation that yoga points us to. Well, yeah, and it's it's liberation from the bondage to self, to this small idea of self, which is I, me, and mine, and, you know, our, our continual striving to... Um, uh, be everything and be the world and run the world, and it allows us to relax back into oh, I'm I'm part of this fantastic interdependent web of being, um, which means that I can I can be happy for the happiness of others. I can be sad for the sadness of others, um, and um, this is you know this is. This is what yoga always aspires to to teach us. Yeah, and you know, there's that question (laughs) that comes up, um, which is, can we actually learn to be happy and at ease? Um, You know, can yoga really do that for us? Or, you know, do we find ourselves, you know, really just tossed about by circumstance? Um, You know, even after many years of, um, you know, being a yogi, there are still times when, you know, I get knocked off my balance. Um, So what is your sense about that? One of the reasons I was drawn to these traditions and and to yoga in particular is this tradition really gets into the question of of suffering. What is suffering? What are its roots? How does it work? And and interestingly, all of the major contemplative traditions, that is Buddhism, yoga, and Jainism, and and others, came up with the same answer to this question. They, They get very gnarly and down in the granular level about suffering. The roots of suffering in, in the Yoga Sutra and in the Buddhist, the Sudhimaga, are grasping, aversion, and delusion. And getting really specific about what causes us 
the sufferer allows us to begin to work much more effectively grasping. What is grasping? Why is it the root of suffering, and how does that work exactly? Mm -hmm. Of course, if you examine the mind when you're caught up in a moment of grasping, craving, clinging, you will immediately see uh, the three components of, of suffering. Number one, when suffering with grasping or aversion, the mind is disturbed. It's The yogi said it's heated up, it's disturbed. Um, secondly, it's obscured, which means not seeing clearly. When you're caught up in a moment of, of grasping, craving, clinging, you're not seeing clearly. You're not seeing the object clearly. So I'm grasping for, I'm thinking right now about, oh, there's a there's a Klondike bar in the fridge. I, I think you know, I really want that, even though I just had breakfast. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. grasping arises in, in the most mundane kind of ways all the time. And if you stop and reflect and experience what it feels like in your body when you're caught up in a mind state of grasping, you discover, oh, wow, it's very painful. It's very uncomfortable. Very mm-hmm. often we... We, we act, that is, I go and get the Klondike bar just to get out of the suffering of, of grasping itself. And of course <laughs> yeah, but then we see that, that that very likely will turn into another Klondike bar down, exactly. the, down the road a bit, which you it cover beautifully uh, in, in the book. And um, we're getting ready to go to the break now. And so I think this is a beautiful place for us to pause and... Um, I want to read a, a quote from your your book um, about the great goal of yoga liberation. You said, you wrote, yogis studied the structure of ordinary human unhappiness and found that the sources of everyday suffering could be entirely extinguished, leading to a kind of freedom we ordinarily think impossible. Yogis called this liberation. Liberation in this instance means freedom from all the sources of conditioning that bind us to small ways of thinking and being. Liberation means being entirely awake and fully alive. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about you know, how we grapple with this suffering that arises or losing our balance um, along the way. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with our guest, Stephen Cope, best-selling author and scholar-in-residence at Kripalu Institute for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. He specializes in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. And today we're focusing on his book, The Wisdom of Yoga, A Seeker's Guide to Extraordinary Living. His website is stephencope.com. I'm Diane Ray, Program Director for Unity Online Radio. And from all of us at unityonlineradio.org, thanks for your support and for helping us grow this year. We wish you a joyous holiday season. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. 
Welcome back to the Yoga Hour with today's guest, Stephen Cope, best-selling author and scholar-in-residence at Kirpalu Institute for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And um, if you're listening in real time, of course, this is December of 2019, and I want to let you know um, I'll be going back to Kirpalu in the spring um, in 2020. So I want to encourage you um, to meet me there. It is an amazing yoga center, and you can find out more about what's offered at Kirpalu at kirpalu.org. That's K-R-I-P-A-L-U.org. And I'll be there um, teaching Kriya Yoga in the spring. So take a look. Uh, Now, let's get back to um, looking at what yoga can offer us for uh, our extraordinary life. And just before the break, we were talking about that Klondike bar in the freezer and um, just after breakfast, and it's already started to call. Uh, and I, I know that one well. And so, you know, as a meditator, we find, you know, that we begin to be able to actually see these patterns in the mind and, um, we can see the struggles that are arising. And I really appreciate the approach that you take, Stephen, of course, bringing East and West together, that we shouldn't be necessarily trying to rise above the struggle, but yoga can actually show us um, how to work with it. And there's a beautiful quote from Swami Kripalu uh, in your book that says, it's all right if we cannot receive struggle with love, but struggle should never be discarded. To discard struggle is to discard God's grace. I loved that quote. So tell us how you see this struggle, this relationship between struggle and liberation. And I, and I, you know, I think some people still hold that thing that yoga just helps us rise above it all. That was my take when I first came to it. But of course, then I ran right into struggle. I, I had the same impression when I first came to it, but then it turns out that these practices actually give you very concrete tools to work with your day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience. And, of course, the day-to-day moment experience is, is full of these factors uh, that create suffering that we've just been talking about. That is grasping, craving, clinging, holding on, aversion, or the Buddhists call it hatred, uh, pushing away, procrastination, judgment, um, and delusion, which is, of course, not seeing clearly, having your windows fogged up. And and the, the tradition points out that our minds are colored by these factors almost all the time. Um, and with meditation and with practice, we actually begin to see them, to notice when that grasping has arisen, and to begin to be able to work with it in such a way that we don't act on it um, in a way that creates further suffering for ourselves or others. And, of course, the, the bottom line is that the traditions point out that actions of body, speech, and mind uh, based on greed, hatred, and delusion create suffering. They create suffering in the moment. They create suffering in the future and for, for ourselves and others, whereas actions based on generosity, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, which are all very real, uh, create happiness in the moment and happiness in the future. Mm -hmm. So 
we begin very slowly, and this is such a great step-by-step path, we begin to, to notice when these different factors are arising in the mind. Uh, and, and working with them is, is not complicated. It's simply a matter of noticing that it's arisen. Oh, grasping has arisen for that Klondike bar. I notice it. I feel it in my body. And, of course, all the physical practices of yoga help you to become more attuned to what it feels like in the body. Um, and then taking a moment to decide whether actually I want to act on that or do I want to maybe leave that Klondike bar in the fridge until tonight when it might be a better time to, uh, to eat it um, or, or not pick it up at all? Mm-hmm. So um, I love the fact that these traditions break suffering down into its component parts. We were talking about, or earlier we were talking about the way in which you notice when you're caught up in a state of greed or hatred that the mind is disturbed, but it's also obscured, which is a technical term that simply means when you're caught up in that state, you're not seeing the object clearly. Am I seeing the Klondike bar clearly? Not so much when I'm caught up in a state of grasping. Um, and then finally, the third factor is separation. Uh, it, these afflicted, the so-called afflicted states, grasping, aversion, and delusion, Uh, create a sense of separation from the world and from objects. Oh, if I could only get that Klondike bar, I would be happy. Or if I could only get rid of that person at work that I hate, I would be happy. So it it exacerbates the sense of of separation from objects and, and from other people. And then gives us all these great tools to work moment to moment with these with these mind states. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated, and I can hear it in the way that you're describing it, is that yoga shows us that, you know, when we experience suffering, which we can feel, you know, we feel the grasping, we may not have identified the root of it or where it's coming from, but, you know, as a practitioner of yoga, we can identify that as a moment to stop you know, as a moment to, um, begin to unravel, you know, what is, what is creating that, um, felt sense of suffering and, um, how can we, um, make different choices? Now, it seems to me that there is a trajectory in the beginning of practice where we, um, we feel the suffering and we see what's arising and we, and we may know that what's arising is not a wise choice. And then we watch ourselves do it anyway. Do it anyway. Right. And that's kind of a horrific thing that happens in the beginning. (laughs) It's like you have more visibility to what's causing suffering, but it seems initially at least that there's less, um, power of volition, um, so, you know, wh- how do we sort of gather that power of volition um, to begin to, you know, stop and make a different choice rather than watching ourselves make uh, a choice that we know is going to lead to more suffering? Well, there, there are a couple ways that this tradition prescribes. And the first one, the most important one, I think, is, is non-judgmental awareness. So you don't judge the act. You don't add um, the pain of judgment to what's already a suffering mind. 
you simply acknowledge this is what it's like to be human. When we live in a human body, we live with what Freud called the drives, the desires, the grasping. Um, and and by, by judging all of that uh, kind of natural human stuff, we, um, we create more suffering for ourselves. So that's A. B is, um, in, in addition to working directly with the, the suffering in, in moments, we begin to practice two different forms of meditation. One is concentration, and the other is what's called in the yoga tradition investigation. Um, and meditation is simply the, the first phase of meditation, which is taught in the Yoga Sutra, is simply gathering the mind, focusing the mind, allowing the mind to settle. And in order to do that, you give the mind an object, uh, you know, the, this, this crazy, driven, ordinary discursive mind, we sometimes call puppy mind or monkey mind, um, and, and the first step in working effectively with it is you give the mind an object. I like to say you tie the puppy to a post. So you tie the puppy to a post, you tie the mind to an object. And very often we use the breath or you can use an external object. Of course, when you tie a puppy to a post, what happens? He goes bananas at first. But eventually, if you give the mind an object with a little training, it begins to settle into the object, to become absorbed into the object, to become absorbed in the breath or whatever object we've given it. And these moments are very profound moments when the mind becomes gathered and concentrated. Now, it, it happens quite naturally in daily life. You know, you're, you're at a beautiful classical music concert, and suddenly your mind sinks into that beautiful violin line in the in the Bach concerto, and just for a few moments, you have an experience of uh, of bliss, of rapture, of mm-hmm. being settled and concentrated and gathered, and it's it's quite delightful. Mm-hmm. What we don't know is that these small moments of profound absorption and concentration, which is the beginning stage of meditation, actually change the brain over time. And they begin to cut the roots of all those patterns. As you and I have been talking about the patterns or the samskaras or the behaviors, um, a human being is a pattern-making animal. So those all come in patterns that we recognize. I mean, I will tell you that Klondike bar, I recognize. I recognize that pattern. Um, And the truth is that a regular, even 7 to 10 minutes a day, of very simple meditation begins to cut the root of that patterning. Mm. And then, of course, there's a whole other series of meditations, which are um, the the experiences of concentration are called the experiences of delight because they do create delight in the mind and a sense of profound well-being. Mm. And And it's really the delight of our own essence that's being revealed. Um, which is one way to look at it, I think, that is helpful in that to get us off that treadmill of that we're trying to meditate to create delight. Um, I I like to sort of think that we just are sitting and waiting for it to, you know, dawn through the clouded mind. Um, And I really like what you said about... um, 
you know, dealing with struggle and how important it is to cultivate this non-judgmental awareness. Um, you know, in other words, don't dig in, (laughs) don't participate, you know, that, that there's so much power in awareness itself. And, um, you know, it's like when we're meditating and then, you know, we, we got on that train of thought and we, we traveled off to Paris or some other place, you know, far away from our meditation. And then there's that moment where we become aware that we have lost concentration. And then we, you know, we bring our attention back um, to concentrate, to meditate. And usually we want to, the mind wants to, you know, get all on, you know, what terrible meditators we are. We've lost our focus. But, you know, it can be just as interesting to consider, well, what is it that brings us back, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's the knowing. And that's where we go back again to that. The human being is essentially the power of knowing. And you've pointed to exactly the right place. It's precisely that knowing that begins to cut the bonds and the, uh, the, the, the bondage to these patterns. This is the magic, Ellen. It's simply knowing those, those states uh, begins to unravel them. Beautiful thing. Now, a lot of meditators do get caught up and do feel frustrated by the fact that in the early stages of meditation, much of your practice is just simply about coming back over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, because I've been doing this for 30 years, that that every time you sit down to meditate and you bring the mind back over and over again a gazillion times in the half an hour, there's actually fruition happening. Something is happening in the mind that bears fruit. Um, so we don't necessarily have these experiences of rapture and bliss from out of the gate, but there is fruition from the very beginning. That's that's one thing I love about contemplative practice. It's not like learning a Beethoven sonata where it takes you 15 years to have fruition. No, the fruition comes right away. Mm-hmm. It does. Insight comes very quickly on the path of yoga. I mean, we get to see, uh, we get to taste that um, pure essence of our being, um, which is transformative. And then, you know, we grapple with, okay, how do I have more of that experience? <laughs> how do I have less of the experience of clouded mind and, and confusion? And um, y- you were um, sort of pointing pointing to two avenues of meditation, concentration, which we, you know, talked about um, focusing the mind, and then also investigation. So um, can you say a little bit more about investigation as a meditative yeah. uh, thing that we can do? It's, it's another factor that we want to cultivate, which is uh, once the mind becomes concentrated, once the puppy you know, I, I like to say the puppy pulls against the, the leash at first, but eventually settles down. And once the mind settles down and becomes concentrated, it automatically begins to investigate its own functioning. It automatically begins to investigate um, the whole realm of, of mind and matter <clears throat> and begins to see how 
these patterns sustain themselves. And um, this is in different traditions. This is called insight or investigation, but it's it's just another facet of knowing. Um, and um, sometimes it's it's painful when when this facet begins to be developed. The the insight practices. Um, it's painful, but the the insight eventually shows you um, three, the so-called, the Buddhists call this the three marks of existence. You begin to see, first of all, the profound extent to which everything is arising and passing away all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this insight into the very nature of impermanence actually begins to cut the root of our grasping. Because we see that the extent to which we're trying to hold on to things that are actually ephemeral and impermanent and, and passing away just creates more suffering. So Joseph Goldstein talks about that as rope burn. When you're holding on to a rope that's being pulled through your hands, it burns your hands. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. On- and it, it it can help us when we, when we have that insight um, to to strengthen our resolve um, to move towards that which brings more um, stability, you know, in our life. So there's that, yeah. you know, that, that this practice of renunciation in yoga um, it comes from this insight of seeing that, oh, all those things that I thought were going to bring me uh, unconditional or forever happiness actually don't have the capacity to give me that. So where do I find it? <laughs> you start looking for the treasure where it actually is. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, in the in the Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he talks about something called Samvega, which is the recognition that um, objects and wealth and power and fame and, and all of those so-called extrinsic sources of supply don't actually provide the profound sense of well-being that we're searching for. And so samvega literally means with vehemence, because when the mind begins to notice that those objects in life that we've been grasping for actually do not provide well-being, we begin to turn away from those and turn to more intrinsic sources of well-being, which is simply our own uh, our own soul and our own enlightened already enlightened and awake mind which is right there and which we've been bypassing or ignoring um, all of these years and as you you know as we started our conversation this morning you know with you sort of lifting up this capacity that we have as human beings to know um, really to be awake. And, and I think, you know, we've kind of come full circle in a sense, back to that, that, that capacity of consciousness, you know, to be awake, um, is really the definition of being fully alive, um, to be able to see the way things are, um, to be able to make wise choices, um, 
and to be able to access uh, joy uh, within us. And, you know, potentially does talk about this, Samvega, this, this vehemence in the sense that we also can progress um, along the path in a sense, in accordance with that um, deep desire. Would you, would you agree with that, the way I put that together? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, what I love about this scripture that I've written about is it gives us a very uh, well-laid-out eight-limb path. It's called Ashtanga Yoga, which means the eight-limb path. Um, and it, it's progressive so that there's a, there's a very slow... <clears throat> erosion of the sources of suffering in such a way that you really do begin to live much more at ease in this life. You begin to live more at ease with the phenomenon of impermanence, the mm -hmm. fact that things arise and pass away. You can enjoy them as they arise and kiss them goodbye as they fly, as, as William Blake said. Mm -hmm. um, and so my experience after 30 years of practice you know, and I came to this, as you probably did early as a young person, looking for enlightenment and for these <clears throat> profound states of, of rapture and bliss. Mm -hmm. And actually what I found is something much more down-to-earth that, that slowly changes uh, the way you relate to experience in such a way that uh, you live more at ease and, and happier in the world. The world as it is, not the world that we that we wish we had. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I would include that in my definition of enlightenment. <laughs> it's just yeah, the enlightenment yeah. that we were looking for was, um, you know, more related to some, I don't know, uh, imagined state, I guess. Um, but this ordinary uh, life that is really, um, as you say in the subtitle to your book, extraordinary. Um, but you know, it, we don't find it, I don't think, looking for the extraordinary as much as we do in learning how to live with awareness uh, with our ordinary life. Um, it's hard to believe, but we're just about at the end of the hour. And I want to take a few minutes as we're getting ready to close here, Stephen, just to ask you for um, a, a summary moment from our conversation this morning of some inspiration or wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with today. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that at this stage of my life, <clears throat> I exhort all of my young friends to learn meditation and yoga and to stick with it because I know the kind of profound happiness that it's brought me. Um, and again, it's not a, it's not a Las Vegas happiness. It's quiet. Uh, it's deep. It's uh, it's profound and it's shared with the, my whole field of friends and and relatives and, and beings. And so I guess my or exhortation would be try this, practice it, and stick with it. Um, because as I said, fruition happens um, very slowly and gradually, but, but uh, very definitely. Mm, and so beautiful. Thank you. And it is really like... Um the sunrise, isn't it? You know, it's just, um, things change, uh, in a way that we can notice, but it is a slow 
and it is deep and it is vast. And I want to thank you again for your tremendous contribution to this field of yoga. Of course, with your beautiful work uh, with Kirpalu itself, which I recommend people find your way to Kirpalu and uh, hopefully you'll find your way there to be with me. I'll be there May 5th through the 8th, 2020, offering a Kriya Yoga meditation retreat. And I want to encourage you also to take a look at Stephen's uh, author site. Uh, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N Cope, uh, altogether, stephencope.com. And you'll find um, the selection of his books there. We had a conversation on the Yoga Hour a few years ago um, on his amazing work, uh, The Great Work of Your Life, um, that is a is a book really about dharma that draws from the Bhagavad Gita, a guide for the journey to your true calling. And that's also another uh, great book, and I would recommend them all. So go to his author site and uh, take a look. And uh, we invite you, of course, to join us next week on the Yoga Hour. My co-host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo, will be back talking with uh, Gina Beigel, who specializes in mindfulness for teens. So they're going to talk about how to be mindful and stress less um, as a teen and with a teen in your family. And you can find out more about classes and programs that I offer um, by going to my author website, ellengraceobrien.com. That's O-B-R-I-A-N.com. And the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is CSE Center. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment Meditation Center in the spiritual tradition of Kriya Yoga. We welcome people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization and want to know about how to practice this uh, philosophy of yoga path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in the world today. Our world headquarters are located in San Jose, California. And uh, we have uh, satellite groups where you can go and meditate with others. So check it out, csecenter.org. Thanks for being with us. I've enjoyed this time with Stephen Cope and with you this morning. And remember um, that you carry that divine peace within you and that your light Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.